I'm at the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. This is the 32nd annual CCSAD hosted by C4 Events. This is where I get my hands on the experts and the professionals in the field of addiction and mental health disorders. So you can have more help, more support, more connection to the information that is going to bring your family back from the brink of destruction, from these destructive habits, these destructive patterns. I'm Aaron Huey. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Hey, parents. Uh, thanks for joining me again this week on Beyond Risk and Back. Uh, I Like I said in the intro, I'm, I'm in Cape Cod at the CCSAD. Um, there is a hurricane headed this direction. I don't think it'll be uh, anything to ultimately deal with, but this is the time of year for it. So we'll see how this series goes. I've got pretty high hopes. So let's, let's jump in. Um, so there's a new term in the industry that uh, every facility is saying that they do, and it's dual diagnosis. Dual diagnosis is a concept um, that we're going to talk about in this show because the truth of the matter is, and I need parents to hear me when I say this, the truth of the matter is, is that everybody's saying now that they're dual diagnosis. And in truth, only about 20% of the facilities out there are actually doing dual diagnosis or co-occurring recovery. And so that's what I'm going to be talking to Dr. Brian Meyer about. Dr. Brian Meyer, um, has spent over 25 years as a, as a child and family uh, uh, psychiatrist in the past. Um, and he's going to talk about what's going on with co-occurring issues. And let's, let me just stop it there because I want him to be able to tell you what that means because it's a term. If you are looking for treatment for your kid, when your kid is in the hospital, you're going to hear it. And if you don't understand what it means, let's talk about that right now. Dr. Meyer, thank you very much for being on Beyond Risk and Back. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, just a small correction. I'm a clinical psychologist, clinical not a psychiatrist. Psychologist. And so I don't want to uh, misrepresent myself. Great. Thank you for the correction. Um, so um, the, the term that I prefer using is co-occurring disorders. And I'll tell you why. I mean, yes, dual diagnosis is the hot term. However, that suggests there's only two. Nice. Um, and nice. the whole idea of co-occurring disorders is that, in fact, most people who have them have more than two. In fact, the data suggests that the odds of having three or more are greater than 50%. So we are often talking, for example, let's take a teenager. Um, we're often talking about somebody who has, may have a traumatic history, they have a, a, usually a depressive disorder of some kind um, because affective disorders come with trauma, and then they use substances to cope with it. Well, now we've got at least three, and then it depends on how many other substances they're using, and so you may have uh, you know, three substances on board, and now you've got five diagnoses on board. And one of the difficulties that we have is there is no treatment that has been designed for five different diagnoses. Right. Um, and so when we do uh, our work with, uh, with kids with co-occurring disorders or with adults with co-occurring disorders, and by the way, they run in families, it's not unusual to have parents who have co-occurring disorders, their kids see their parents using, and then they move on and have that, and it happens to them too. So co-occurring disorders is literally saying there's multiple things happening at the same time. And, and when we introduced the show, we talked about recovery is generally based around addiction recovery. 
And people have been saying, well, this type of addiction recovery is going to help deal with trauma. And it doesn't. Trauma is a very specialized uh, 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 science. Like what we understand about PTSD now and how we understand the, the brain, the human brain, the child brain can get traumatized by the internet by a parent divorce, by the simpler things. You don't have to be in a live firefight because you said you work with veterans and these live firefights are certainly a concept of, uh, that, that can create trauma, but so can your parents screaming at each other about money. Sure. Okay. So, so let's talk about that. A let's little talk bit. about that. Okay. So, um, I'm a tra what's called a traumatologist. That means that's, that's my specialty, but my specialty as a traumatologist is to work with people with co-occurring disorders. Having said that, Trauma comes basically on a spectrum, um, and uh, it's helpful to think of it as uh, there are uh, little t traumas, mom and dad are screaming at each other, right. but it's not necessarily life-threatening. And then there are larger traumas like I'm being beaten, um, or uh, even worse than that, believe it or not, in, in the literature about uh, kids, is it's far worse for them to be emotionally abused than physically abused. Right. Uh, it, the worst of all is to be sexually abused. And all of those are big T traumas. Big T. Big okay. T. And in fact, there is a wonderful instrument that uh, people can go to. It's available online at aces.org, uh, or ACE study, I'm sorry, acestudy.org. It's called the ACEs, which means Adverse Childhood Experiences. You can find it. It is a 10 a question. Literally, like 10 questions. It's literally 10 questions. And here's the thing. The chances of having a co-occurring disorder uh, go uh, logarithmically upward if you have four. If you have four. Four. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have it with one, two, or three. And in fact, uh, the average is one uh, among United States society. But there are the, when you have one, the chances of having two are higher. When you have two, the chances of three are higher, and so forth. And what we are seeing is kids who come out with eight to 10. Okay. Wow. All of them. All, I mean, they're basically getting almost all or all of them oh. and they're walking into uh, all sorts of problems so these are kids who they're they're having trouble in school they're having trouble with grades they're dropping out they're truant they're getting in trouble with the law they end up getting arrested sleep for patterns it. are they've going got to... they've got sleep patterns going to heck um and uh so they're dealing with all of these different kinds of problems plus this new kind of problem which we have not uh, which is new to treatment which is, uh, you know, on the internet, we now are having internet bullying. Right. Um, and that creates its own kind of trauma. That's a, that's a kind of emotional abuse as well. Is there a chicken and an egg thing going on here? Does this all start with a, you know, when, when we talk about adverse childhood experience, is, is that the first thing that happens? Is that there's something, a little T for trauma or a big T for trauma that happens first to, to compensate for the pain, the kids start smoking pot um, while they're high and drunk at a party, they get sexually assaulted. Is that how, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of a standard, what I would hear in my parents' brain say, that's how it happens. Um, yes, that's one of the patterns. Uh, that's the pattern we call spiraling downward. Okay. Um, there are actually five different patterns of co-occurring disorders. Um, there is one in which the trauma occurs first, and then they use the substances to cope. 
there is another in which they use the substances first, and then they become vulnerable. Yes, they get high at a party, and then they get raped. Okay, so it happens in the reverse order. There's a third where you can have the tra a trauma, and then both the post-traumatic stress and the substance abuse come afterwards, like you have an automobile accident. Right. You, get, you develop pain. At, you develop a PTSD from the accident, but you also develop an opioid addiction opioid. from it, dealing with the pain. Uh, there's a fourth one that's the spiraling one that you're talking about, and the fifth one isn't coming to my head right away. Well, let's uh, let's uh, because now now I but think you get the idea. I do. There's a whole lot. Yeah, there's a ton of them, and I think that's one of the surprising things about this conversation for families is realizing that there's not it, so long. Addiction has been like it's genetics, it's a disease. Oh, never mind, it's from trauma. Okay, no, wait a minute, it's back to genetics. Like, it's all. It's it, these it's things. It's everything. It's everything. Absolutely. So let's go back to the co-occurring and the recovery part of it um, because the let's let's just take the 12 steps I'm I I love the 12 steps I did the 12 steps it, the steps weren't the thing that got me sober and I've said that many times on my podcast for me it was the other people in the room who would give up their their time and their energy to keep me sober that was what inspired me to stay if, the, if they gave a crap about me what do they see in me that I don't see in myself Okay, so now we're back to the recovery piece. Traditional models of recovery were very AANA centric. Absolutely. Even when we were doing private facilities, people started bringing in horses. People started bringing in uh, EMDR. The, the, these things have joined and 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 have grown. If you were to walk into a facility and take a look, if you were to walk into my facility. As a facility that says, hey, we are a dual diagnosis treatment facility. We work with uh, uh, co-occurring disorders. We are an integrated program. What would you be looking for? What would you expect to see from my facility to say, you know what? They're right. Okay. So the first thing I would look for is are you doing seeking safety? There is only one evidence-based treatment for post-traumatic stress and substance use, and that is seeking safety. It's been proven to work in teenagers, it's been proven to work in adults. Um, seeking safety is basically a 12 to 25 uh, units uh, set. It is uh, developed by a woman named Dr. Lisa Najovitz, um, who is extraordinary. Uh, basically, each of these uh, 25 units is on a subject that involves both trauma and substance use. So you'll start with a, a sheet of paper that has 84 safe coping skills on it, 84 ways wow. to cope with trauma and substance use both. And then um, you work that through the entire uh, uh, 12 to 25 sessions, and then you're dealing with different things. What's the link between PTSD and substance use? Uh, anger, which is common, to, uh, very common to both. Especially uh, with marijuana smoking. Like, like that's, that's the first thing people, are, people see, is how surprised they are 30 days into a, a kid not using. The anger absolutely is amazing. Okay, and, and it's very interesting because now the data are beginning to show about marijuana that marijuana, actually the most uh, heavy marijuana smokers, actually tend to be the ones who commit the most severe violence, which is really interesting. Not moderate levels of violence, but the severe, severe. stuff where, you, where you're using weapons, where you're breaking limbs, where you're bloodying people. Um, Severe violence is much more likely to be committed by marijuana users than non-marijuana. This users. is amazing because this is where the hate mail is going to start up. Because anytime sure. I do a show 
about the dangers of marijuana. Look, it's going to be legalized in all 50. It's coming, the medical stuff, blah, blah, blah. It's happening. When I do a show talking about what's really going on in your brain with anandamide, neuro, neuromodulators, these types of things, the hate mail that I get, the vehemence, the threats that I've gotten. I don't get this from opioid addicts. I don't get this from alcoholics. I get this from marijuana users who are using this high potency THC product. And I don't remember that being the case when I was in my addictive years smoking all day long, every day. For us, it was the peace, it was the high, it was the love. And now, I'm, I, I have to say, I'm actually not surprised by what you're saying. Yeah, well, and you know, there's all of these political battles around it, but let me say something about THC, okay? Please do. that's what you're raising. I mean, first of all, marijuana has somewhere between 83 and 100 cannabinoids in it, okay? Right. We really only know about three to three and a half of them. Um, we're, just, we're just investigating the fourth of them. Um, we know that THC causes every negative symptom of marijuana okay it's the one that leads to psychosis it's the one that blocks the memories it's the one that leads to the severe violence um the thc uh it's the one that leads to the disconnect um the the thc is where the problem is although i will say there is one i want to be very clear there is one possible use of THC, and that is for cancer patients only. For the eating. Thing. For the eating. Yes. Because that is THC. Right. Other than that, THC has no known benefits whatsoever. Right. Now, there are lots of discussions going on about CBD of course. right now. Of course. Um, we know only one thing for sure, which is that it is helpful for kids who have epilepsy, and now there right. is a new medication out for that. There are lots of other reports about uh, uh, CBD. The internet, if you Google CBD, <laughs> is filled with nothing but garbage. 30 million pages. Uh, 30 of million garbage. Pages. Just, yeah. just garbage. <laughs> if you go and read the research, what we know today is almost nothing. Okay? Right. Maybe it might help with pain. Maybe it might help with sleep. Maybe it might help with anxiety. Maybe. maybe. These are all maybes. In five years, uh, we will know much more. And I want to be totally fair about this. Yeah. Um, the reason we don't know is because the federal government for um, you know 20 years, 30 years, only allowed uh, the cannabis plants from one facility in the University of Mississippi to be used for research. So you could get a research project funded, you could get a research project approved, and you couldn't do the research because the federal government wouldn't have enough cannabis plants to do it. I also understood that all that research is based on plants that had no higher than a 10% of THC. That is absolutely yeah. true. And the problem is, okay, so look, um, I grew up in the 70s. Uh, in the 70s, the average percentage of THC was 4%. Um, and by the way, the average percent of CBD was about 26%. These days, those numbers have changed enormously. The average is now at least 12%, and the high-test stuff is up to 32%. Right. And we're not even talking about people who are vaping. And by the way, we're now seeing, starting to see vaping The laws are marijuana. changing very good. Michigan cha just changed their laws day before yesterday. Boulder, Colorado just outlawed flavored vape. Like, it's coming. It's coming. Right. Um, uh, the problem is that the science is behind what the laws are. Right. We passed a lot of laws 
before we knew. And in fact, the data are now reversing. For example, they, uh, the early data suggested, oh, people were saying you can use marijuana and you'll get, use it to get off of opioids. That was true uh, for about three years. And now when you follow those people seven years out, you find that actually they're using more opioids, okay? Wow. Wow. So the data are actually reversing as we watch over time. I think, Doc, I think you and I have a whole nother show with another colleague of mine called uh, uh, named Avani Dilger, who runs Natural Highs and is an expert of this. I'd like to get the three of us together on mics to do this at a, at a later date. I'd be happy to um, do it. All right, let's, I'm going to plan on that. Um, I'm writing that down right now. Okay, so let's get back to the co-occurring. I love sure. that detour because, man, I could soapbox all day about, about the, the honesty around what's taking place in this world of THC. Let me give you one more thing. Please about do. That, which has to do with co-occurring. Okay? okay, great. And, and I'm going to talk about co-occurring with post-traumatic stress. Okay, so there was a study of 2,000 people, and they looked at marijuana usage. And what they were looking at is, okay, if you're getting treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, and you're getting that treatment, if you're using marijuana or not, how does that affect the success of the treatment? Okay, and this is a little oh, bit complicated. Interesting. So um, it turns out there are four groups. So let's start with the people who used marijuana versus the people who did not. At the beginning of the study, before they went into post-traumatic stress treatment, the people who used has hi had higher levels of PTSD, and the people who didn't use had lower levels. Now, we did not know why that was. Okay, maybe the people at the higher levels had worse PTSD. Who knows? But this is what's interesting. If you follow them out, there are four groups. Uh, there is a group of people who are, are the ones who are continued smokers. They smoke throughout their treatment. Their PTSD levels do not change. Wow. Don't change. So they don't get better, okay? The marijuana interferes, and I'll, I'll tell you an example of this later. Um, then there are the people who never use. Guess what happens to them? Their PTSD drops. In other words, they can utilize the treatment because they're not smoking and they're not getting their receptors blocked and therefore they're able to make new connections. I can't tell you how many parents I've had in the last uh, almost two decades now of working with teens who would say to me, I don't care if my kid smokes pot i just want them off this hard stuff and they're not getting that marijuana is now hard stuff it's yeah. it's not what it was back in my day back in your day and we're from That's the right. same same childhood time frame i i remember tie stick remember that was the stuff oh, I that remember if you tie got sticks. tyson <laughs> seven and a half percent thc right seven that was the good stuff Right, and these days the average stuff is 12%. Average is 12, 35 is easy to get your hands on, and the dabbing stuff is 100%, 99%. Absolutely. And people like you, people like me, we have seen marijuana-induced psychosis. Yep. People out there who may have not seen it don't think it exists. We still will steal a tool of prohibition and blah, blah, blah. Now, so now we've got people who are traumatized. And this was my this was my thing because my trauma of abandonment as a child, the first time I smoked pot, I was like, oh, look, a whole group of friends and I feel good. When I'm high, I'm happy. When I'm sober, I sa I'm sad. Why would I want to be sober? 
And that was my launching point. And you had a whole group of friends. That's what made you happy. Yeah, I, I, I'd like, exactly, right? Oh, man, we go outside and we hang out. It was being outside that was good for me, not the getting high and going outside, on and on and on. But when I went through N.A., they certainly were able to help me deal with the problems of my ego and and the metaphors of giving this giving this thing that suddenly I wasn't stronger than over to something that is stronger than it. But where I ended up is then I started having really toxic relationships with women. And when I was like, oh, this is a more addictive codependency, then I ended up with food issues. And it was at that point that I was like, ah, problem's Aaron. So how can we get parents to understand? What do we need to tell parents to look for, to recognize pot may not be the problem. It's not the solution, may not be the problem. It is a problem or it's one of five, three, 10. Absolutely. So how do we get parents to start to say, here's how I test for that? Here's how I test for it? Here's I mean, how I look for it. Here's, here's, here's what I need to know to, to stop blaming weed or his group of friends, or the fact something happened to him when he was three, that all of it is an equalized issue. Well, I mean, one thing you can do is you can look at an ACES and you can say, oh. And that's free, much? by the way. And that's free. Yeah. So it doesn't, anybody can do it. You can, you can do it on your own child. Uh, you, I mean, you know the answers to those questions. And so when you see that, you will see what is underlying this need for trying to get connections with other people, or this need for trying to find some way to cope with the traumatic symptoms that, uh, that a person has. And people use substances for everything from going to sleep to trying to block out their nightmares to trying to block out their memories. Uh, right. They're using it for everything. Um, uh, the nice thing about seeking safety, by the way, as a treatment, and this is really, really important, is that it is an integrated treatment. Okay. Explain that. And so we have this history in this country of separating out co-occurring disorders into substance use disorders and mental health disorders. Right. That's what we do. And we do it all the way from the training that people receive who are giving the treatments to the insurance companies, which don't insure substance use the same as they do mental health, all the way down to our treatment centers. Right. Where it, as you said, 80% of them aren't doing the co-occurring disorders. We know from data that if you try to, you, to deal with whatever the substance is and you try to get the people off it, that almost all of them will relapse because their traumatic symptoms, as soon as you take away their coping mechanism, and it's bad coping. Yeah, okay? it's bad I'm, coping. I'm, but it is coping, okay? We right. have to recognize that. If you have not given them some other kind of coping, which is what those 84 safe coping skills do in seeking safety, if you don't bring up their other coping as you're moving down on their substances, they will relapse. It's very simple. And so you have to give them the safe coping skills and a new community. Okay? And we know the community is actually the most single most important thing for long-term recovery. In okay. fact, John Kelly last week spoke, uh, I saw him on C-SPAN, he's an a alcohol researcher, and his point was that if you are actually looking at long-term recovery, and he's talking 15 or more years, he's not talking the two to five years right. that a lot of us talk about, the only thing that works is a new community. That is the only thing that works. And sometimes that is AA or NA, but only sometimes. Uh, there are other alternatives. 
Uh, one of them that has a lot of good research behind it is called Smart Recovery. Um, smart Recovery, there are Smart Recovery groups. There's a Smart Recovery uh, online site. There's a Smart Recovery app. What's great about it is you can get into a group 24-7. There's always a Smart Recovery group happening online, and you can go talk to them. And they give you very specific cognitive behavioral tools to help you change your thinking, to help you change your behaviors. And it works just as well as AA. Okay, and so that's a different community. There are now Buddhist communities right. that are setting up and that are doing relapse prevention work around mindfulness meditation. And the early data, and it's early, are very good. They're very good because they teach people how to cope with their cravings, how to cope with their urges, how to be not responsive to every trigger. And it's a lovely way of dealing with it. Okay, so let's let's... I know we've touched on lots of stuff. Yeah, and and there's so much here that parents need to hear, that parents need to know. Let's let's come back to the the walking out of the hospital where their kid is for their third suicide attempt, right? The the hospital saying you need to uh, get your kid into a residential facility. Um, you know, parents are looking at wilderness programs. They're 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 looking around. They're hearing these terms co-occurring dual diagnosis. What are some steps, like, like, like just literal steps, one to three things that you want a parent to do for their child, for their family, with regards to finding the right treatment for the facility? Okay. So when parents are trying to, trying to find the right residential facility, yeah. the first thing to do is to look for the term evidence-based treatment. Okay. Okay. It is really critical that they find a facility that has evidence-based treatment, which means treatment that has been proven to work. However, allow me to make a caution that I have I come to conferences like this. I love to go around to residential facilities. I love to say, what is the treatment you're using? And then I, I say, okay, well, uh, let's just take seeking safety as an example because I'm always asking about that because it's the only one we know that works. And, uh, and, I'll, and, and they'll say, oh, we do seeking safety. And I'll say, great, what lesson are you on this week? And the residential treatment centers that say, oh, you know, this week we're on asking for help or this week uh, we're working on um, uh, thoughts about relate, beliefs about relationships. Okay, they actually know what they're talking about, okay? <laughs> and residential facilities would say, well, I, I really don't know. I don't know. I've been to places where Seeking Safety is a book on a shelf, and they're not doing anything. Right. Um, so evidence-based treatment is number one. That is the first thing they need to look for. Okay. The second thing we, they need to look for is what is the parenting component? This is absolutely critical. Uh, residential treatment centers, the data on them, that have parenting or family involvement are much more successful at six and 12 months out than those that don't. Okay, so that is really important. And then the third thing that is important, and I know this sounds weird, but is job skills program. What kind of job skills work are they doing? Because the truth is, uh, that kids and adults as well need A, something to structure their time, right. B, something to feel like they are good at. And without, and, and so when you see residential treatment centers that have job skills programs, the data on them 
are, again, much better than the data on residential treatment centers, period. Now, let me say one more thing about uh, residential treatment centers, which is about length. Um, this is really interesting because people have lots of arguments about length of treatment and how much is quote-unquote enough. So what we actually know from the data is that this is a kind of a curve. Uh, improvements happen to about 45 days. And then there's a <laughs> precipitous drop. <laughs> right. Because people start becoming institutionalized. They start getting used to this notion of, oh, I have 24 access, 24 7 access to structure, to I get all these people, they're right. like back and call at any crisis. And then they go back out in the world and they don't know how to handle things. Right. So it turns out that the ideal peak is between 34 and 45 days of residential treatment. Okay. The last thing that people have to look for is what is the connection to aftercare, okay? Residential treatment centers are great for what they do, and they're only a first step, okay? <laughs> because what you're trying to do in the residential treatment center is, first of all, help the person get clean, and then the second thing you're trying to do is give them some skills, but you don't, ha th this is a lifetime disease, okay? Right. And if there is not very clear setting up of aftercare, and they need to start doing it from very early in the treatment in the residential treatment center, what's the aftercare plan? Who are they connecting them out to in the community to which they will be returning? Right. That's it. So those are the things, the five things I would be looking so for. So that's, that's huge for parents to hear. Uh, doctor, if there's a parent who wants to get in touch with you, follow you, get some of your research books, anything like that. What do you have for families out there? Okay, so I'm I'm in the process of setting up my website. Gotcha. It's not there yet. Um, Social uh, media, it, Facebook it, it page? Will be, it will be brianlmeyerphd.com. Great. I can tell you that. Um, uh, you know, I've got the website, but I, I just haven't put it all up yet because I'm going around the country talking about things like now this. you got a show to put on the and, website and now I can, I can I can put a link to this show um uh however I, I do have an email which is also Perfect. Brian L Meyer PhD at gmail okay okay and that's Brian with an I and Myers M-E-Y-E-R and okay. so if people need to contact me that's where to contact me okay and um should people be contacting you because they they need more clarity on co-occurring disorders is there anything else you can help them with you know uh I I've been doing this uh, since 1982, so you know I got 37 years in this field, <laughs> um, and that doesn't count the years I was a tech in in a hospital because you could then you can add a bunch right, more years on top of that back to high school, literally, right. wow. which is kind of crazy. Um, so um, you know my expertise is in trauma and substance use, and uh, and and especially. Uh, um, uh, depression and bipolar disorder on top of that because they're so common. However, I will say that, you know, once you've done what I've done for as long as I've done it, you develop expertise in everything. Sure. So you learn, to, you learn to develop expertise in sleep, you develop expertise in pain because we have to deal with that around all the people with opioids. Uh, you have to learn to develop expertise in traumatic brain injury because uh, too many of these people develop traumatic brain injuries on top of everything else. Do you participate in telehealth? Do you take clients uh, long distance? Um, I do not currently at okay. this moment, um, okay. and that's because I work full-time for the VA, and I go around the country giving talks, and there's a limit to my time, yeah, and my sure, wife of course. wants to see me every so often. Does she? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to have a conversation with her. And by the way, I, I heard you say that at the beginning. I want to thank you for your work with vets 
It's huge. It's important. They're one of our huge suffering demographics out there that just can't find a break anywhere. And they've they've been through the worst of what the world has to offer, the the most evil of man, and someone's got to help them. And knowing that you're at the VA is a big deal. So well, thank it, you for that work. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I, I will say that what's interesting about working with vets is that more than half of them have histories of child abuse. Oh my gosh. Okay. So what? And the other thing that's interesting is that when I moved to working with vets, I thought, oh, I'm going to work with this older population. Well, what I didn't account for is, you know, the fact that trauma and substance use both freeze the brain. Right. So we're talking about a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds right. uh, frozen, and, and they're in bodies as old as, you know, mid-70s, if it were talking wow. Vietnam, for example. And so I'm still dealing with exactly the <laughs> same people I used to deal with. They're slightly older, but, you know, their bodies are older. That's, what, that's, that's something that parents really need to hear. Drugs freeze the brain. Drugs freeze, absolutely freeze the brain. Causes development. That's right. And, and, and they change the structure of the yeah, brain. They do. Um, and it can be as little as one time. That's the real frightening thing. High-test marijuana, there was a recent study, the high-test marijuana used one time in a teenage developing brain changes the structure of that brain. We're, we're going to follow up with another show. I'm going to get Avani on. We're going to do a panel show about the, this, these high-grade marijuanas, what they're doing to the kids. Uh, Dr. Meyer, this has been amazing. You're my first show of the event. Thank you so much. I look forward to having you back on a longer show. And uh, thanks, thanks for doing your work with vets. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, folks. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. This has been another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, coming to you from the 32nd Annual CCSAD. That's the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. Thank you to C4 Events for having me here. I also want to thank Dylan at Deepin Productions. Dylan does my sound engineering. He also does the music for Beyond Risk and Back. So if you need to get in touch with Dylan, go to deepinproductions at gmail.com. That's D-E-E-P-E-N productions at gmail.com. If you've seen anything about Beyond Risk and Back on social media, you can thank Your Cause Consulting. To get in touch with Your Cause Consulting to handle your marketing needs, go to info at yourcauseconsulting.com and send them an email. Thanks so much for listening, parents. Remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. This has been Aaron Huey, and I will talk to you soon.